Welcome to the SSPX podcast, and this is not our usual way of introducing a podcast, uh, but we're doing this a little bit out of order. Hello, Father Wiseman. How are you? Hello, Andrew. Doing well. Thanks. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Now, we are recording this little introduction to the rest of the episode uh, after what we've already recorded. Uh, it is a little bit strange what has happened uh, in the last last few days here, uh, but why are we doing a little introduction here, Father? Right. So we actually recorded the podcast um a little time ago and we were set to release it. And then the new motu proprio of Pope Francis came out, uh, Traditionis Custodes. And so, you know, we, we had the idea, maybe just give a little intro to the, to the rest of the podcast to say that the principles which we lay out during this podcast really still apply and apply to this document of Pope Francis as well. And in fact, they're, they're the same principles that the society has used and understood whenever the society has faced uh, restrictions put on the traditional forms of the mass or the sacraments. And I also just want to mention a couple of passages in the motu proprio itself and then in the document accompanying the motu proprio, which I think are really revelatory in terms of what we what we've in fact said in the in the podcast that's about to come up. So I, I just mentioned these so that then if somebody can somebody's listening to the podcast, they can kind of keep their ears open and see that it's precisely what we were laying out. And the first quotation that I'll that I'll give here is just from the motu proprio itself. So the Pope says in Article three the bishop of the diocese in which until now there exist one or more groups that celebrate according to the missal antecedent to the reform of 1970. And then there are a whole, whole list of requirements. The first requirement, though, is that that bishop of the diocese, quote, is to determine that these groups do not deny the validity and the legitimacy of the liturgical reform dictated by Vatican Council II and the magisterium of the supreme pontiffs. And the way I read that is you have to, the bishop has to make sure that anybody who's going to be given the ability to say the traditional mass, the mass according to the 1962 missal, has to first accept the validity and the legitimacy of the Novus Ordo Missae, so that it's in a continuity with the liturgical tradition of the church, which, as we'll say in the podcast, is precisely what we cannot in conscience accept. And the second quotation, which goes along the same lines, is actually from the letter that accompanied the motu proprio. So here's what Pope Francis says there. Uh, I, I am nonetheless saddened that the instrumental use of the Massale Romanum of 1962 is often characterized by a rejection not only of the liturgical reform, but of the Vatican Council too itself, claiming with unfounded and unsustainable assertions that it betrayed the tradition and the true church. And so there, that statement of the Pope, again, mentions those two things that we, the society, we've always been asked to accept, to agree to, that the Second Vatican Council is in continuity with the tradition of the church, that it's uh, a proper expression of the magisterium of the church, that we must adhere to it entirely. And then the second thing, which is that the 
Novus Ordo Mise represents, again, a, a continuous and, and normal development of the Roman rite. So I find it very striking that those very two points that we mentioned in the motu propria, sorry, excuse me, in the podcast were, were brought out so explicitly in the motu proprio and its accompanying letter. So hopefully that gives the listeners a chance to pay attention during that part and, and hear those two things. This is the situation really that the society has been in uh, uh, for a while now. Well, that, that helps uh, a lot to put what we had already done in some context with these developing uh, events. Um, and I was I was telling a friend last week, Father, after you and I recorded uh, that this to me this this episode this podcast that we did number thirty three is is the linchpin of the whole series. Um, right. To me, I, I don't want to I don't want to say it's my favorite because I don't want to insult some of the other priests. But yeah. to me, it's it's it really defines where we're going with the whole rest of the series. Yeah. But it also yeah. defines you as the Society of Saint Pius X, what you priests yeah. do. So. Um, yeah, that's very exactly. helpful. And again, it's it's very uh, relevant to what's happened here yeah, uh, on agree. July 16th. This is going to be a little bit of a thorny episode um, because, well, this is this is a big question that everyone has. But first, welcome, Father Wiseman. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you, Andrew. How about you? Doing very well, thank you. And uh, we are chatting here in the middle of July, and you're in between um, academic years at the seminary. You're going back to teach at the seminary again this coming year, right? Yes, that's right. No, no right. change for my assignment. Okay. And are you still teaching the same classes? Yes, I will be teaching the same classes. So dogmatic theology and philosophy. Wonderful. Well, we are we're happy to have you here with us uh, at least during the summertime. I know things are going to get busy for you again in the fall. Um, but today we're going to be talking about obedience. Um, obedience and its limits is basically the title of this episode. So we're trying to figure out, do we always have to obey the church, the Pope, the bishops? And when you and I were corresponding before we started this, Father, you said, I'm going to start with Amoris Laetitia. Yes. Why do we start there on a question of obedience? I'm intrigued. So I want to start with this. Amoris Laetitia, because I think it's a situation in the church that's more or less uh, present, and it's been very much in the public eye, we could say. And it presents a, a very interesting case study, if you want to put it that way, of this whole question about obedience. So I see it as kind of a a good example to give the guidelines or to show already in the concrete uh, how this kind of discussion is going to go. And so if we, if we want to start there, we can mention just a few basic facts that I think anybody can really look up when this uh, apostolic exhortation was released. A lot of people saw in it some very surprising statements that seemed to open up the possibility for uh, giving communion, so Holy Communion, the sacrament, to those who have been divorced and have remarried. So they would be publicly living in, in a state of sin because the church does not recognize that a real marriage bond can be dissolved uh, before death. So they would be living in sin with a second uh, partner or whatever. And the document seems to suggest that you can give them 
Holy Communion under certain circumstances. You have to pastorally discern and, and all this kind of thing. And what was what made the whole situation more surprising was over the next few years, so this is already a couple years old now, but uh, over the next few years, Pope Francis seemed to uh, really confirm an interpretation of the document that would suggest it to be possible to give Holy Communion to those who are uh, divorced and remarried. And maybe most notably, I'll just mention one instance, uh, the Buenos Aires bishops released a, a document following upon Amoris Laetitia in which they gave guidelines for its application, for its practical application. And in those guidelines, they explicitly say that it's possible for the divorced and remarried to receive Holy Communion. There is a circumstance in which this could happen. And Pope Francis's response, which came very quickly, I think it was even the same day, uh, which, which response, by the way, was later added to the official acts of the Holy See. Mm. Uh, so in this response, he approves their guidelines. And he further says, uh, there is no other interpretation possible of Amoris Laetitia, except what you've given in there. Okay. And so now you can say, we're faced with a dilemma, a real dilemma. And that's the dilemma is, is the following. So on the one hand, we have basically two millennia of church teaching, which declares that no one living in the state of sin is apt to receive Holy Communion. So if you do that, it would be a sacrilege and a very serious one because the Holy Eucharist is really, truly, and substantially our Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I say two millennia because even St. Paul points out, if you receive the Lord unworthily, you're, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Right. So that's on, on the one hand, we have that, that constant, constant teaching of the church. And on the other hand, we have the Pope who is suggesting that it is possible in some circumstances to give Holy Communion to those who are living in a state of sin. And he keeps repeating, he kept repeating that, that it might be possible in certain circumstances. So in front of that, you're in front of a, of a contradiction. And you then have the question, well, should we promote the teaching of the Pope, in which case we abandon the tradition of the church in this regard? Or should we rather reject the teaching of the Pope and say that we're going to follow tradition? And the reason I bring this up in the context of the whole question of obedience is because it very quickly comes into the practical realm as soon as we start looking around the church and seeing some of the bishops in their diocese saying, now we can do this. We can give communion to the divorced and remarried. So imagine a bishop who tells one of his priests, now this couple who are living in sin, you give them communion now. So that's mm -hmm. a, it's a practical command that now this puts this priest in the situation of what do I do? I have a contradiction. And so our question is, where is true obedience? Where is it obedience to the church's teaching? Is it obedience to the Pope's teaching, which is different? And so it, it seems to me like you kind of really sum up the, the, uh, the dilemma here that we're facing with this whole question of Amoris Laetitia. And I, I wanna say one more thing along those lines before we kind of 
jump into the actual subject matter. And that is that um, notice, I call it a dilemma because you've only got two options. Supposing that command comes from the bishop to the priest, let's say. Uh, well, you can either obey that command, so follow that command, uh, in which case you're going to need to explain why you are ignoring 2,000 years of church history. Or, on the other hand, you could not follow the injunction of your bishop, so refuse communion to the divorced and remarried, in which case you also need to explain why you're doing that. And so it's a dilemma because either way you go, you have to kind of give some kind of account of your action. And I think that you can kind of lay out four positions, if we can put it that way, that somebody might, uh, one or the other of which somebody might fall into in facing this question of, do I follow or do I not follow the command of the bishop or the teaching of the pope, whatever. If on the one hand you say, yes, you should follow the command of the bishop, then as we said, you have to give a reason why you're ignoring the church's tradition. And generally speaking, I think people come up with two possible reasons for doing that, why you might not pay attention to the previous teaching of the church or not think that you're in violation of it in some way. The first reason is that they just urge what we might call a blind obedience. They say, look, it's not my job to reconcile what my superior tells me to do and anything else. I just follow my superior and that's the end of the story. And so I don't have to look into anything. I just do what he tells me to do and that's the end of it. And you notice that's a way out of the dilemma because you don't have to worry about the contradiction. Right. So that's one, one way to address it. Another way to address it, if you intend to follow what the bishop is telling you to do or what the pope is teaching there, is that you try to reconcile the two. So you try to reconcile what the bishop is saying, what the pope is saying, with the constant teaching of the church. Or when that doesn't seem to be possible, you, you invoke some kind of other principle, such as infallibility. You say, well, uh, anyway, the pope's infallible, so... I don't see how these aren't a contradiction, but they must not be. So I, I'm just too dumb to understand. And so there must be no contradiction there. And therefore I can go ahead and obey. And that's a way out of the dilemma too, because now you've removed the, the problem, which is the, the contradiction between those two statements. So those are two of the four positions. If on the other hand, you're going to say, I don't give communion to the divorced and remarried. So I'm going to, uh, not follow the command of the superior. Now I need to give a reason for why I'm doing that. And here too, I think people generally give two responses to this, two reasons why they're, why they're not actually committing a sin of disobedience. Um, the first is that we claim that the person who issued the command actually has no authority over me whatsoever. So he's not my legitimate superior maybe because he forfeited his office, maybe because he's doing some kind of heresy or whatever, uh, whatever the reason. But I say, actually, he's not my lawful authority at all. And so he can't command me to do anything. That gets me out of the dilemma because now there's no dilemma. I only do one thing. So that's one way to answer it. The other way to answer it is to say, well, I realize that every superior can only do 
what is not in contradiction with a higher authority, in this case with God's law or with the faith. And so him giving me that command to give communion to the divorced and remarried goes against God's law, which is revealed to us in scripture and taught through these two millennia of the church's teaching. And so if I were to obey or, so to speak, follow the injunction of this bishop, I would actually be disobeying the higher authority. And so my apparent disobedience to the immediate superior is actually an obedience to my to the higher superior, in this case, God himself, the faith. So you kind of have like four positions there in face of these dilemmas where there appears to be a contradiction between what my lawful superior or my superior is saying and what some other superior, some higher authority is saying. And, and, and basically, sorry, and I was going to say, basically, yeah. anytime there seems to be a contradiction between what a superior is telling you to do and something that you feel may be right, like anytime there's that, that break between the two, you have to pick one of these four. These are the options. I, I think I'm speaking a little bit, well, I'm painting a little bit with a broad brush, but sure. more or less, that's the way I want to see this. Uh, okay. You certainly either have to obey or not obey, right. but you're going to have to give a reason either way. And it seems okay. to me those reasons kind of fall into these four four camps. Um, if we if we come back just w for one moment to the question of Amoris Laetitia, um, we can see that, that uh, there was a, a very famous document that was released um, called the Correctio Filialis, uh, filial correction issued to the Pope. Um, I believe it was 62 um, lay scholars and clergy who, um, who signed the document. They initially sent it to the Pope privately, but then when he didn't reply, they released it publicly and they, they garnered a whole bunch of other signatures. And in this document, they're clearly uh, they they lay out what they see to be the contradiction, multiple contradictions, in fact. And then they say that it's our duty, basically, to not follow what you're saying, Pope Francis, because it's in contradiction with what has been revealed, what is part of the faith. And they say, we're being, we recognize your authority. We know you're the Pope. We know you're infallible when you make these declarations on faith and morals in a certain way. But in this instance, we need to respectfully tell you you're wrong because the rest of tradition is not with you. And I think that correctio, actually, that language there is very uh, good, a good example of that fourth position where I say, I recognize that Pope Francis is, is my lawful superior. But in this matter, he's overstepping his own authority. And if I were to follow him, I would be disobeying a higher authority, uh, that of God himself. And so th they're issuing this correctio filialis. They call it filialis, meaning it's filial. It's coming from his sons to him, the father, the holy father. And they want to, to issue this to him because they want to say, you need to change what you're saying because you're leading people astray. And the reason that's kind of the reason why I brought this up to begin with, because it's very hard to get out of the contradiction that is uh, there between what Pope Francis is saying in that document and what he what he keeps repeating and the tradition of the church. I, I don't know how you can escape that. 
difficulty. And so the correctio filialis, it's, it's not coming from the society at all. It's coming from somebody else. Uh, I believe Bishop Fele signed it as well, but that was, uh, he, he didn't draft it to the best of my knowledge. And, um, so, so it's, it's somebody else in the church who's seeing this very dilemma of obedience and its limits. And that's why I wanted to bring that up. Um, I guess if we come back now to the current situation in the church, the current crisis, I want to lay out again those those kind of four positions, because for me, they're, they're a good way to approach this question now in the context of uh, what we've been talking about with all these these podcasts. Um, so if we if we come back to the position of the society now and the current crisis in the church, um, we can say, well, what is it that we as the priests of the society or what is it that the faithful who come to the society, what is it that they are commanded to do by their legitimate superiors, which seems to present a contradiction? Let's try to say that first. Well, in the concrete, as a priest, I'm commanded by uh, by the Pope, by even the bishops, the bishop of, of the diocese, let's say, uh, not to perform any of my sacred functions, such as saying public masses, hearing confessions, so on and so forth, I'm commanded not to perform those functions without the approval of the hierarchy. And that's completely normal. That's the way the church works. It's a hierarchy and everything. But because I'm a priest of the society and because I say these things about Vatican II and the Novus Ordo Missae and so on and so forth, the authority says to me, well, we're not going to give you the approval to do this unless you accept certain doctrinal positions. And we're going to talk about what those are in just a moment. But that's the price of the approval is that you got to accept these doctrines. you got to sign some document or say some things, and then we'll give you whatever you want. You know, then you can do what you want. And then the faithful also are told, and we, we, we see this, we've seen this even in the past few years, you can't go to the Society of St. Pius X for Mass or for the sacraments because they haven't received the approval of the hierarchy. And the approval of the hierarchy is depending on their accepting, again, certain doctrinal positions. Now, uh, what are these doctrinal positions? And I, again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but I think it's because they've come out really already during this uh, during these podcast series. The doctrinal positions we can kind of say are, are two. One is um, regarding Vatican II. They say, well, you have to admit that Vatican II represents a legitimate continuity with the teachings of the church due to what? The living nature of tradition. And I believe you, you, you've spoken about this, I think in the conversation with Father Ruder on the mm -hmm. hermeneutic of continuity. So the living nature of tradition means Vatican II actually is in continuity with all the rest of the teaching of the church. So that's the first kind of thing. They want us to say that. They want us to say it was a good council, Everything was fine, no problems with it, uh, however you want to say that, hermeneutic continuity or whatever. The second thing that they want us to say is they want us to say that the Novus Ordo Missae suffers from no doctrinal defects, but rather it embodies 
the liturgical and doctrinal continuity with the traditional mass. And so that is to say, we cannot say that there is a doctrinal problem with the Novus Ordo Mise. We can say we prefer the old mass to the new mass, but that's about it. And so again, the, uh, for me to exercise my function as a priest depends on accepting these two doctrinal positions. But this is exactly where the society says, we see a contradiction. We don't think that all of the statements in Vatican II are consonant with the statements of the church's perennial teaching. And furthermore, we don't think that the Novus Ordo Mise represents adequately the Catholic doctrine of the mass. In fact, it militates against it. And that's a serious problem for us. So once again, we're in front of a, an apparent contradiction. This is the position of the society. And therefore that comes down to a practical action, which again, looks like a disobedience because we are saying to the authority, I'm gonna keep celebrating mass and I'm gonna keep giving the sacraments, even though you haven't given me your approval. And the faithful are saying to the authorities, well, we're gonna keep going to the society even though you haven't given your explicit approval to them exercising their sacred functions. So this is the battle line, if you wanna put it that way. And this is where we stand uh, in the society. This is, this is our, our situation. So we're in front of this question again of obedience. And that's why I mentioned those four positions come up here. And in my opinion, they kind of define the landscape in the church today with regard to the crisis. And we can describe that as follows. So in face of this apparent contradiction, remember we've got two options. We can either obey what our, the authority is telling us to do, in this case, accept those doctrinal positions, or we can uh, not follow what they're telling us to do. And again, in either case, we're gonna have to justify what we do because we have to resolve the, the dilemma, the, the apparent contradiction. So again, there are four possibilities, it seems to me. The first possibility is those who do accept the doctrinal positions, but they say, well, we don't need to even investigate the matter because you know, it's the Pope and the bishops who are telling us to do these things. We just follow, it's not our job to make judgments about whether their statements are in conformity with tradition or not in conformity with tradition, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And so this is the position of a kind of blind obedience. And I would say it kind of summarizes the position of those also who maybe don't take the time to investigate the situation in the church today. Uh, interestingly, I thought when I was preparing this conference, I think historically, more or less between 1988 after the consecrations and the year 2000, Rome always urged, was always urging the society to obey. And they never gave reasons for it. They just said, you just need to obey, 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 obey. And it, it for me, it kind of sounds like this position of just, just obey. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't question, just obey. That's a, a question of blind obedience there. So that's the first position. The, the second position of the four are now those who 
accept the doctrinal positions, so accept Vatican II, say the Novus Ordo Missae is good, there's no problem with it whatsoever. Uh, they accept those things, but then they try to claim, and you know what, there's no contradiction between Vatican II and the tradition of the church. There's no contradiction between the Novus Ordo Missae and the traditional mass. Now, why do they say that? Well, they either try to reconcile it by examining the statements and showing, well, if we interpret them in the right way, then it's probably fine. Or else if they find they're stuck and they really can't do it, and that's again why Amoris Laetitia is kind of interesting, you, you can't do it, you can't fix right. it. Um, then they say, well, um, infallibility. And so they can't make a mistake. The, on this matter, the Pope and the bishops can't make a mistake. So they're mu they must be reconcilable uh, we just can't figure it out. And so we have to obey. That's the end of it. That I think is more or less the position of the fraternity of St. Peter and uh, similar ones who, who will to some extent engage in the discussion of the crisis of the church, but they, they try to explain away the contradictions that we, we attempt to present. Or we can maybe call yeah. them like the, the hermeneutic of continuity Catholics, the, the Catholics right. who, who really hold to that, which is that episode number 30 that we did with Father Ruder. Exactly. Yeah, that would fall into this camp pretty solidly. Okay. And, okay, so that's the second position. Well, the third position, now we're on the level of rejecting these doctrinal positions. So we say, nope, we refuse them, and we're going to keep doing what we're doing. But again, one way to do that is to claim yeah, you actually have no authority over me anyway. So we say to the Pope, guess what? You're not even the Pope. And that's why you're making these mistakes. And we don't have to follow somebody who's not the Pope. So we're not going to follow you. Mm -hmm. Or they say to the bishops, well, you forfeited your office as a bishop because you're teaching heresy openly. And so so we don't have to follow you. You're, you don't have any authority in the church. And that describes the set of vacantist position, uh, more or less. There are there can be different flavors there, but essentially they're saying, uh, you don't have authority over me, so I don't disobey you when I don't do what you say. That's the third position. Now, the fourth position is where the society falls, and it's precisely to say, no, we refuse these doctrinal positions. Why? Because they're not consonant with what the church has always taught. And so if you command us to accept them, you are doing something that is outside of your authority. You are doing something that would contradict a higher authority and we must obey God rather than men to, to, to cite that uh, scripture passage. And so if you want the society's position, that's where we fall is to say, we recognize that you are the Pope and that you are a legitimate superior. But you are not our, you are not God. You are not the one who gave yourself the authority to do that. Therefore, your authority is limited. And when you step outside the bounds of that authority or when you contradict the authority of God, we have the duty not to follow you, but to follow God. And more or less, that's again the position of the, of the society in, in the current crisis. And Kind of the way that I want to, I realize this is a quite a lengthy introduction, but the way I want to lay out this podcast for discussing this in more detail is to present uh, a series of objections to that position that I've just described. Okay. Which, and again, the reason I brought up Amoris Laetitia is because 
it seems like in that correctio filialis, it's more or less the language that we would use in the society, but with regard now, not just to communion of the divorced and remarried, but these problems of Vatican II, problems of the Novus Ordo Mise. It's the same kind of thing. We recognize your authority, but we cannot follow you where you contradict a higher authority, if that okay. makes sense. So, so these are these four positions. The last one is, is the position broadly of, of the Society of St. Pius X. Now you're going to give us these four objections. These are four example objections that people would, would say, yes, but, and then we'll answer okay. these objections. Um, you're kind of laying this out like St. Thomas Aquinas. What are you, a Thomist or something, yeah. Father? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's hard when you taught from St. Thomas a lot, you end up falling into kind of the way he does things, um, which no, is but that's good. a that's great a, way of doing it. That's good. Reason. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I think, yeah, so these, these I'm going to present, as you said, present four objections. Okay. Um, and I, I see these as objections to the position of the society in the current crisis. Okay. And these objections are going to give us a springboard for discussing the question of obedience and then hopefully, again, justifying our position, the society's position. Okay. So I'd like to I'd like to name these objections, lay them out first, as this was supposed to be my. Uh, they speak about like a, a captatio benevolentiae, right? You 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 catch the goodwill of the listener, but I think I've already been talking too long for that. So <laughs> anyway, if we lay them out, maybe maybe also in in the podcast or something, we could we could link to the different ones if somebody wants to jump. But they yeah, they do absolutely. kind of build on each other, so. It'd be nice if they could listen to the whole thing. But uh, in any case, let's lay them out. So the four four objections. The first objection is, is the following. They, somebody might say to us, hey, well, look, uh, many of the saints counsel absolute and unquestioning obedience to superiors. And there are even examples of the saints who say, even if the matter is unreasonable, it's more perfect to obey. You just need to obey. And when we're talking about the church authorities and the highest authorities in the church, it seems like we really should just obey them. Just obey. That, that's, the, that's the better course. Uh, once again, true obedience cannot make exceptions. And uh, again, I think, was it in the uh, talk with Father Franks, the sort of question and answer, one of those lines mm -hmm. was obedience before preference or something yes. like that. And I, I think that's more or less this objection to say to the society, uh, you're not following the example of the saints, which is that of you just obey, you do what you need to do, God will take care of it. So that's the first objection. The second objection uh, maybe goes a step further and says, well, look, you're presenting to us a contradiction between what the church authorities of the present day are saying and tradition. But that's not possible. There cannot be such a contradiction as you claim there to be. Why? Because of infallibility. You, or at least the indefectibility of the church. That is to say, Christ promised to the church, say the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. If what you're saying is true, then it really seems like nobody's infallible, or it really seems like uh, the gates of hell have prevailed against the church. And so that's another objection to say, nope, we cannot do that because we can't admit a contradiction here because it would lead to a disaster, basically. Uh, or again, they, they say this in many ways, you know, well, how could the Pope make such a mistake? Or how could all the bishops, really most of them, pretty much all of them, 
make the same mistake. It's just not, it's not possible. It's unthinkable. Right. That's the second objection. The third objection is uh, similar, but it tries a different tack. And I, I think we might've had some comments along these lines already too. Basically saying to the Society of St. Pius X, you know what? You're really arrogant. <laughs> you're really uh, audacious because uh -huh. you're claiming to know with certainty that there is a contradiction between what the Pope is saying and the bishops are saying and the perennial teaching of the church. And who are you to claim that you have that knowledge or that you can make such a judgment? You may have overlooked something. You're fallible. Nobody guaranteed you to be infallible. So you may have overlooked something and it's very dangerous. It's very uh, temerary to claim that you see the matter clearly. And therefore, again, much safer just to obey because you might be making a mistake and then you'll be in huge trouble. So that's a third objection. The final objection, which is my also setup for the podcasts that are coming, is more or less the, the set of vacantist objection to our position. So it's completely in the opposite direction of those other objections. And that's saying, we agree there's such a contradiction as you claim, but if there is such a deep disagreement between the current church authorities and the perennial teaching of the church, and it's the job of the authorities, the very task of the authority is to present the faith, not to contradict it, then clearly they are not those authorities. They have either forfeited their office or demonstrated that they never had it to begin with. And so the Pope is not the Pope. The bishops are not bishops or they're not exercising the office of the bishop. And we don't need to ask any further questions. That's it. We just we need to just hold to tradition and forget all these guys. That's the end. And that is, again, the, the set of vacantist objections. So what we're going to do for the rest of the podcast is try to take on these objections one by one. And we'll, we'll just go through them, I think. OK, great. Uh, so let's let's uh, I'll keep the we keep the objections nearby just because we're going to have to reference them. So we're sure. going to go back to the, the first objection first. And again, this objection said uh, the Saints Council um, obedience, unquestionably, you just need to follow. So kind of the position of I characterize it as the, the blind obedience position. And in, in order to understand how we respond to this, we have to give a little bit of background about obedience itself. And I'm going to try to do this fairly briefly you can find a lot of these statements or pretty much all of these statements in an encyclical of Leo the 13th called Deuternum Illud. It was published June 29th, 1881. And so again, if, if somebody listening wants more information or more detail, they can go there. I'm going to try to just sum up the key points that are going to be useful for us. Okay. So first point that the Pope makes is that man is social by nature. That is to say, to reach his physical and his moral perfection, he needs, it's absolutely necessary that he be in some kind of society. That's going to be, first of all, his family. We see that very clearly. A, a baby, an infant, needs his, his mother and his father. And secondly, it's going to be uh, some kind of civil society. That is to say, a, a perfect society that's able to supply all of man's needs where the family cannot supply it. 
And the way the Pope says this is, is quite simply, he just says, God, who is the author of nature, wills that man should live in a civil society. Couldn't be clearer. So society is natural to man. It comes directly from God uh, because God is the author of man's nature. That's the first point. Once you grant that, now the Pope says the next, takes the next step and he says, in order to have a society, we have to have somebody or a group of people who are governing the society. Why do we need that? Because we have a bunch of individuals who all need to work towards the same goal. And this is the least surprising thing ever. If you look at any sports team or whatever, you've got to have a manager or a coach or uh, those positions to direct all the players to achieve the same goal, which is a victory in their sport. And the Pope says this very clearly. He says, God has willed that in civil society, there should be some to rule the multitude. So the rule of the multitude is also willed by God. And interestingly, I'll just mention kind of in passing um, that St. Thomas Aquinas points out that even before original sin, so when man is in a state of innocence, uh, man would have lived in society anyway and under an authority. Mm. And he gives the same reason, which is that you need somebody to direct the wills of all these men to the same goal. So even without sin, we need authority uh, and society. And that, that's a, an important point, I think. Now, if we take one more step, we can see with the Pope that if somebody's got to govern other people, then they're going to need a power over them. And that power over them is going to have to be such that they can compel the subjects, the members of that society to do something. The way the Pope puts this is he says, uh, those by whose authority the state is administered must be able so to compel the citizens to obedience that it is clearly a sin in the latter not to obey. So it's kind of striking to say, well, somebody who's governing the, in, in a society has the power to compel a member of the society to do something under pain of sin. Right? That's that's what the Pope is saying. Otherwise, there would be no way to direct everybody to the same goal. You got to have the, have the power to uh, to put it bluntly to coerce to right. to make them follow. Now, the the final step is to, is to realize that no man can ever claim such a power over other men by himself. Uh, I have no right to command or to bind the conscience of another man just by my own authority or power or whatever. Rather, and I'm going to quote the Pope again because he puts it very simply, he says, this power to, to oblige the other resides solely in God, the creator and legislator of all things. And it is necessary that those who exercise it should do it as having received it from God. And then he quotes scripture, uh, the epistle of St. James, there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to destroy and deliver. So the conclusions we can draw from this very brief overview are as follows that, and this is constant teaching of the church, very clear, clearly stated in many places. First and foremost, God is the sole source of all authority of men. 
All power comes from God, period. Even the power that's wielded in society to direct other men to their goal. Again, uh, our Lord says to Pilate very clearly, thou shouldst not have any power against me unless it were given thee from above. Right? That's a uh, gospel of St. John. So that's the first thing, all power from God. Secondly, men do really receive power from God to exercise it over others. But that means that they cannot use that power or that authority to compel men to do what God himself forbids. That would make God contradict himself. That's impossible. So no human being can coerce me to do what is against God's commandments or the law of God. Third conclusion is to realize that why does this authority exist in men? Why do they have the power to bind other men for the sake of the common good of the society? So the, the good that's common to all the members of the society. If I can put in just a brief footnote here, that concept of the common good is a difficult one. Right. Uh, I gave a couple of conferences uh, some years ago in St. Mary's on this topic, just in case anybody's interested. I think they're still up on YouTube or maybe we can repost them or something. Yep. We'll put them below. We'll put them right there. Okay, so um, that's it's really, they're kind of long, but we're not going to go into it right now. But the right. point is you have authority to lead men to the common good. Uh, so the conclusion is from all these points, and that's getting back to our, our, our topic here, that any commands or laws which a human superior enjoins upon his subjects have to be within the scope of his authority, and they must direct men to the common good of that society. So a law which falls outside of the scope of an authority is no law at all. For example, if the uh, government were to tell me, now you as a priest have to tell us everything you were told in confession. Well, that can't possibly be a law because they have no authority over what happens in the confessional, which is between the soul and God. So that's no law. Or again, another example, if a law is not directing men to the common good, but actually contradicting or going against the common good, it cannot possibly be a law because they haven't received their authority to direct men to something that is evil, but to something that is good. And this example, very simply in modern times, no state can legalize abortion. Even if they say it's legal, nobody has the right to get an abortion. That's simply the state contradicting a higher law, uh, not directing men to the common good of the society. And so that's no law at all. Uh, so that those are our kind of conclusions there about where where this commands and this authority are going to come from. Now, if we if we take now the question of obedience, we see it's it's related directly to that uh, because of all that we've just said. Now, if I am a subject or a member of a society, then an act of obedience, so following the commands of of the authority in that society. Uh, that's going to be a good and praiseworthy action because I am actually obeying the authority of God through this man uh, who has the power to direct me to the common good. So that's a good and praiseworthy action, act of obedience. And therefore, what gives me the ability to do that uh, with ease and, and, and um, you know, 
without hesitation and all that kind of thing is going to be a virtue. And that's what we mean precisely by the virtue of obedience. It's the habit uh, in my soul that makes me prompt to obey or to follow the command of a legitimate superior uh, so as to fulfill it, right? So as to, to, to obey him, to follow what he says. So that's, that's the virtue of obedience. Now, I want to emphasize here that it's a moral virtue and because it governs moral action. My actions are good if they follow it, not good if they don't follow it. Uh, but every, every moral virtue of man is governed by his reason. Man is a rational creature. He has to act according to his reason. All the virtues are, are according to reason in some way. So um, with obedience, as with any other moral virtue, we can make a, uh, a summary, a kind of picture, if you want, of what is the true virtue itself, and then two ways, two extremes, uh, two ways that you can go wrong, you can fall short of the virtue. And this is very much uh, according to the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas, who always does this with the virtues. He always lays out uh, the moral virtues. He lays out the virtue itself, the mean, uh, the, the what's in between, and then what falls to one side or to the other side. Um, and here, if we can say with regard to obedience, I guess I want to give a an example, first of all, so that we understand this kind of picture. Um, Garigou Lagrange, a commentator on St. Thomas, will draw it kind of like a, a mountain, so like a triangle. He'll say the virtue is between the two extremes, but also on a level above the mm. two extremes. And that's very helpful because let's take a very simple example. The virtue of courage, which is going to give me the strength to, for example, die in battle. Uh, that's a virtue, but it has, there are two ways I can go wrong. I can either be, uh, have a defect of courage. So like not enough courage, and then I'm a coward. So I, I just run away from the danger. I just uh, escape the battle or, or whatever. And that's, I, I seem to be lacking something there. I don't have enough courage. But on the other hand, you can also make a mistake by having almost, so to speak, too much courage. It's not actually courage, of course, but, and you right. can fall to the other extreme by excess. And now that's called foolhardiness. So you, you, are, you are reckless in some way. So courage as a virtue is going to lie between those two extremes. You need for courage a good balance of fear, which if you're only motivated by fear, you're a coward, and a, a balance between fear and boldness or audacity, which if you have too much of that, uh, you're going to be foolhardy. So you need a kind of balance here, something in the middle. That's courage. And the reason Garigou Lagrange says that it's not only between the two extremes, but also on a level above them is because he realizes that the two defects, the excess, sorry, the defect and the excess, the two errors, the two extremes are both motivated in this case by emotion. Why do I run away from the battle? I'm too scared. I just, fear takes, the, takes a hold of me and I, I run. Or why do I charge into the battle and not pay attention to what the general is telling me to do? Um, well, because I have too much uh, emotion, right? Too much anger or something like that. I just want to kill them all. So I just charge in. That's foolhardiness. But when I act by courage, I don't act by emotion at all. I act by reason. 
Mm-hmm. I, I judge the situation. I weigh the possibilities. I see that I'm afraid, but I see that it's the time to attack now. Or I see that I want to attack the enemy, but it's the time to pull back. That's acting by reason. And so we're on a different level completely. We're not on the emotional level. We're on a reasonable level. And that's why we draw this triangle. And we say virtue is, is the mean, the middle, but it's, it's above the extremes, uh, on a level above. If we talk about that with regard to obedience now, we can see it's something like that for this moral virtue. Obedience is going to be kind of mean. Well, how can I fail by defect? Well, if I don't have enough obedience, we can put it that way, I am simply disobedient. I don't follow the commands of a legitimate superior. I have in some way fallen away from the virtue of obedience. But I can also make a mistake in the other direction. And now I can have almost, let's say, too much obedience. Of course, it's not true obedience, but I can uh, be slavishly or blindly following the superior. And once again, the virtue of obedience is going to be between, but also above these two extremes. And so uh, what's the problem with both disobedience and blind obedience or, or slavish obedience, if we can call it that? The problem is that they're both, neither of them is motivated by the authority of God. I disobey because I want to do something else. So who cares about what the authority says? I don't want that. That's disobedience. But slavish obedience is to say, I'm just going to turn my mind off. I don't care where this command is coming from or what it reconciles with, or I just doesn't don't care. If it's from the mouth of the superior, I follow, I'm done. And you see that both of those mistakes are precisely not to look at obedience as a virtue, connecting us with the authority of God through the superior. And therefore, the virtue of obedience is going to obey the superior, but not because that superior is nice to me or, or any other reason, but simply because he has received his authority from God. And that's the most important thing, I think, to understand uh, from this podcast about obedience is that when we obey the principle of our obedience, the reason we obey is the authority of God. And that's very clear in, in numerous Catholic teachings. It's clear in scripture with how Christ counsels obedience and all of that kind of thing. We don't need to make citations, but we follow a command because it comes from God in some way. We follow it through the legitimate superior. That's, that's the virtue of obedience. Now, that puts us in a perfect position, finally, to answer that first objection, which again, the first objection was saying, just obey. And now I think we can see that the problem with that is that that would put us into this slavish or um, blind obedience, which is not virtue at all. And that's the, the whole difficulty here is that the Catholic faith has never counseled blind or slavish obedience. It's not a virtue to do that. Virtue is a rational thing. It's, it's judged by reason. Man is a rational creature. He has to act in all things by his reason, submitting himself to God through the legitimate authority. And I believe it's St. Thomas Aquinas who points this out too, uh, where he says, if a religious were to obey a superior in a matter that's not lawful, he would 
make a mistake, he would commit a sin by that. He can't do that. He has to use his reason to see that the command really does come from God through his superior. He has to see God in his superior. So um, blind obedience is not obedience. And this, this objection falls to the ground precisely on that point. Uh, maybe if we could say something else here, just to give the objection some uh, as much credit as we can give to it, when the saints counseled uh, unquestioning obedience, they're, they're trying to exclude disobeying, so that error by defect, because a lot of people try to justify disobedience by the spurious reasons that come from pride. I'm sure that's urged against the society as well. Um, and so the saints are trying to say to people, like, be careful when you do this. But they never say, just shut off your brain and just, you know, obey like a robot. They never say that. And they don't say that because they'd be contradicting scripture. Uh, I cited a little earlier. Um, it's in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5. Uh, Peter and the apostles answer the Jewish authorities. They say, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so they clearly see the need to make this distinction and this judgment Yes, this command is consonant with what God asks of me, or no, it's not, in which case I have to obey God rather than men. That's obedience. Uh, so none of this changes if we're talking about the church authorities, the pope, the bishops. Um, there's a limit even to their authority because they're human, and they've received that authority and that power from God directly. They don't, uh, they're not the source of it themselves. And so as, as rational creatures, as Catholics, we have the duty to practice the virtue of obedience, which is not blind obedience. And especially in matters that touch the faith, our eternal salvation is at stake in some way. Uh, and in, in face of the crisis that, that the church is facing, um, we have to take time to examine the position. And so that first objection doesn't work. It's, it's not, it doesn't hold. Right? Okay. Wow, that was, that very interesting. <laughs> no, that, it was good. Um, and maybe you're going to answer this at the end, Father. I, I do have a quick question. How how can one be certain? And and maybe that's that's a bigger, much bigger question than, than we have time to answer in, in this one. But um, it, it seems like the saints were counseling people not to not to uh, disobey, which is generally more of the tendency, given our fallen nature, than to just always slavishly obey. That's more tempting for us just to, to disobey than to obey. That's probably sure. why they were yeah. uh, pushing on us to just go ahead and obey. But yeah. how do you know when, when not to obey? And I know that the circumstances are going to change it every time. But Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that in this podcast. I want to do that a little bit later on. Uh, I do think that's a okay. serious and a, and a real question today, but I okay. think it's going to be better answered in the context of the crisis in a further objection. So we are going to get to that. All and, right. Uh, you can hold me to that. Bring it up if I don't, if I don't mention it, but I, I think okay. I'll say something about it later. So, um, all right, let's, let's go on to that second objection now. Um, now the second objection, if we remember had said, well, you are the society you're presenting um, a kind of contradiction between the church authorities and the tradition of the church. But in fact, no such contradiction is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it not possible? Well, either because of infallibility or else because if what you say really were the case, uh, we'd be facing some kind of destruction of the church or who knows what. And anyway, I, it's unimaginable that 
all the popes, you know, all these recent popes and so many bishops would be wrong. That's just unthinkable. So that's right. the objection. So they're, they're saying there really is no contradiction. You, you might not see it, but there's no contradiction. Now, I, I think that there are kind of two questions that this objection raises. The first question, which I'm going to purposefully state uh, too bluntly, uh, but I think it gets to the point, is that uh, this question, can the Pope and the bishops be mistaken? Can they make a mistake? Uh, can they teach something that is erroneous? Or are they always right? And uh, because they're infallible, we just, everything they say is true. Now, I don't think anybody really says it that way, but this gets to the point, right? That you resolve the contradiction based on infallibility. You say, nope, they can't make a mistake. So we have to see that. Second question, which is raised by this objection is more that, that, um, that question of the possibility or what seems to be unthinkable. That's, well, we're talking about Vatican II. That's an ecumenical council of the church. A lot of bishops, all the bishops for, for sake of argument are there. And we're talking about the Novus Ordo Missae, which is a liturgical discipline that was issued to the whole church. Um, how could it be possible that the, the Pope could be wrong on that matter or that all the bishops could be wrong on those matters? That's the second question. And I want to split them up because we have to say something about infallibility first. And then after that, we have to um, we have to say something about the question of, you know, is it even thinkable that the the, the pope and and the bishops would e would even do this, right? Mm -hmm. So let's try to let's try to address these questions uh, in order. Now, the first question is asking basically about infallibility. Uh, this is already kind of long, and I don't I don't think we can go into all the details about the doctrine of infallibility here. Um, I realize there are some questions there, but uh, I what I want to do here is just dispel a misconception which could be lurking around in somebody's mind. Maybe they haven't teased it out yet, but uh, it could be there. Um, sometimes it's unstated misconception. Basically, that infallibility makes it so that the Pope or the bishops are really unable to make a mistake or at least unable to speak error so that they, they cannot teach error in any way that we could conceive that. And I'm going to claim that that's a misconception or a misunderstanding of the doctrine of infallibility. And I'm going to prove it by citing Vatican I, which stated very clearly this. Uh, it's a well-known quote. It says, for the Holy Ghost was not promised to the successors of Peter, so the popes, that by his revelation, they might disclose new doctrine, but that by his help, they might guard sacredly the revelation transmitted through the apostles and the deposit of faith and might faithfully set it forth. So what they're saying there is that the gift or the, the privilege of infallibility does not cover uh, this situation that the Pope is saying something new, saying something that is not contained in the deposit of faith. That's not why the Holy Ghost is given. And so you have to understand that I think the way we, we interpret that passage is, is that it's if the Pope is teaching something that's within the doctrine, within the deposit of the faith, not if he's saying something which is 
different from what the deposit of faith says. In that case, he's not protected by infallibility. And so that hopefully dispels a little misconception there. Um, but just in case, let's look very briefly at history. Again, this could be another conference in itself, but I just want to mention a few notable examples of, well, for lack of a better way to say it, Pope's getting it wrong, right. um, making a mistake. Uh, we start in scripture. Galatians uh, chapter 2, verse 11, St. Paul correcting St. Peter. So he says, uh, when, when Cephas, so when Peter was come to Antioch, I, that's St. Paul, um, withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And there's a lot of commentary on this passage. Everybody seems to be agree in agreement that this is a filial correction of St. Peter, but that St. Peter was making a mistake that would have been a scandal uh, to those who are trying to practice the faith. And that's a big problem, right? But there clearly the uh, St. Peter is making a mistake and St. Paul recognizes that. So he corrects him. Uh, we can cite a few other examples. Um, the Pope Liberius, who was uh, at the time of the Arian heresy um, and who unjustly excommunicated St. Athanasius. Again, there's a lot of debate as to what he did or didn't say. What's clear is that uh, at, a, at at least some part of his papacy, he was not upholding the Catholic faith against Arianism, but he was going in the direction of Arianism and in some way then giving this scandal on a matter of faith, right? Whether the, the, the true divine nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so that's another example. We can cite also uh, Pope Honorius I. Uh, so this is around uh, the 600s, early 600s. Um, he's writing an official letter and he seems to claim there that our Lord only had one will. So the era of monothelitism and uh, that's that's a mistake. It's wrong. Our Christ had two wills because he has two natures. Uh, now, he didn't intend to dogmatically define anything there. Uh, that's very clear. But it's an indefensible letter from a pope. It's an error. It's a mistake. It's it's wrong. Uh, we can even call it, um, in some sense, a heresy, right? It's against, it's against the faith. Okay. Uh, final example, uh, John the 22nd. Uh, so this is the early 1300s. So even while he was Pope, he was teaching in some of his sermons that those who die in the state of grace and go to heaven do not get the beatific vision, so their final happiness, um, except after the end of the world, the last judgment. And uh, again, here he didn't try to dogmatically define anything, but he publicly taught what was wrong erroneous. That's, that's false. They, as soon as they die and they're admitted to heaven, they have the beatific vision. So these are some examples that, well, yes, in fact, the Pope can make a mistake and he can teach something that's, that's false, unfortunately. And that as long as he's doing that, he's not protected by, by infallibility, but he's, he seems to depart from the deposit of faith. Um, now this is again, it's it's uphold upheld, excuse me, by uh, the fathers, the theologians, especially interpreting the passage in Scripture from Galatians. I'll just uh, conclude this part by citing Saint Thomas Aquinas again. So uh, he says the following: um, There being an imminent danger for the faith, 
prelates must be questioned, even publicly, by their subjects. Thus, St. Paul, who was a subject of St. Peter, questioned him publicly on an account of an imminent danger of scandal in a matter of faith. And uh, so it's very clear. St. Thomas is saying, if you have this situation, so he clearly thinks it's possible. In fact, it happened in scripture. It's, uh, it's necessary that, the, that these prelates be questioned, right? That we ask, say, what are you saying? Are you saying the opposite of what we were taught? Are you saying the same thing? Clarify, because there's a danger of scandal here. And if I can just hop back to Amoris Laetitia again, that Correctio Filialis uh, cites some dubia or doubts that were given by four cardinals to the Pope precisely along these lines, trying to clarify things and say, what are, are you saying this? Because it seems to contradict what came before. And again, the Pope didn't really adequately respond to those dubia. And so the, the Correxio Filialis, eventually they, they brought it publicly to say, we need to make it clear that this is going to cause a scandal. It's causing a scandal in the church. Um, so that's, that's a good example of that. Um, so, so that was kind of the first question, which the second objection raises. Um, uh, well, can the Pope and bishops be mistaken? They can. That's not what infallibility means. It doesn't mean they can never make a mistake. Um, now, the second part is really where I think most people get stuck when it comes to the Society of St. Pius X. And that's that's that was this, that you say, hey, look, you're trying to claim that an entire ecumenical council uh, was wrong. And that a liturgical discipline that was issued by the Pope uh, um, for the church was um, wrong. And that just, don't buy it, right? That's uh, heavy. Too much. Yeah, yeah. It's heavy, exactly. And so that's why I want to say this is, this, is, this is the sticking point for people, for a lot of people, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's the reason why uh, we're doing the whole crisis series, because the burden of proof in some sense is on us, the society, to try to say there is a contradiction here. These two things don't go together. We cannot reconcile them. And that's again, in, a, in the Correctio Filialis of Maurice Letizia, that's what they did. They tried to say, these two things cannot be reconciled. What do we do? Direct, you know, solve the problem, we say to the Pope. And the society is saying the same thing to Rome. We don't think these things can be reconciled. Here are our arguments. Here is what here is what we see. Uh, you need to make a clarification. You need to make something clear because souls are being lost. Uh, the scandal is being given. It's clear from from the situation in the church. So solve the problem. We, we're saying to Rome, right um, now. So if we, the society, if we can establish that there really is such a contradiction then I think the, the the rest of the discussion follows. You have only the danger of falling into set of vacantism at that point, but the rest of it follows. We have to obey God, not men. So we can't do this. If you tell me to, to affirm that the Novus Ordo Mise is good and without problem and, and no issues ever with it, I cannot do that because that would contradict the faith. And that's, that's my claim. Uh, so I think that the, the, the podcast series, we've been trying to establish that um, and so, of course, we're not going to repeat all that now, but just realize that that's, it's a sticking point for people, but they need to go into the arguments. They need to go in to see 
why do we say there's a contradiction? And that's why, you know, going back to the question of the hermeneutic of continuity, Father Ruder was talking about that. He's saying, uh, you know, even the progressives were saying there's a contradiction. So they see it. And um, even Pope Benedict XVI was saying, ooh, uh, yeah, you can kind of see that there's a disagreement here, but we've got to explain it away with the her hermeneutic of continuity. So the society, we're not the only ones saying there's a contradiction. Uh, I, I think that's important to see, but we try to give arguments for it, right? Um, okay, so we're going to address some of those topics in more detail later. You mentioned the, the Vatican II is Vatican II infallible. That'll go into that in detail. And I believe coming up, uh, but but later is this question of the new mass, you know, how could a Pope uh, give a mass which is, which is lacking something? Uh, that's going to come up. We're going to go into detail, but I would just say to people like, pay attention to those arguments because that's where we're trying to establish that we think there's a contradiction here. And if there is, then it's clear we have to obey God and not men. Uh, but I want to just, um, and I'll do this very quickly, and maybe, you know, we can link some of these other quotes uh, in some notes. But um, I want to mention just that to support the possibility uh, that errors are presented even from the highest authorities in the church, uh, we've got some quotations from various popes, doctors of the church, theologians th throughout the ages. So they're all seeming to admit that this might be a possibility, and they counsel what to do if that were the case. I'm only really going to cite two, and then uh, there are a whole slew of them. They're very strong and striking, but uh, we can we can link those in some notes or something. Um, yep. Here's one from uh, Pope Innocent III. Uh, so he died in uh, 1216. He says the following, the Pope should not flatter himself about his power, nor should he rashly glory in his honor and high estate, because the less he is judged by man, the more he is judged by God. Still the less can the Roman pontiff glory because he can be judged by men or rather can be shown to be already judged. If, for example, he should wither away into heresy because he who does not believe is already judged. In such a case, it should be said of him, if salt should lose its savor, it is good for nothing to be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. Uh, now, I realize that's a quotation the set of Achandists are gonna urge against us as well. We have to solve that later. But notice that what the Pope is saying here is that be careful to the Popes, right? Because if you depart from the doctrine, you are already judged by the doctrine that you are sent to teach and to protect. And so you have to be careful not to become useless. But he seems to recognize that that could be a possibility. Otherwise, he wouldn't be talking about it. Um, so that's the first quotation. That second quotation, that's, again, I'll leave it at that for this part, is just this, that um, St. Vincent of Larens, who uh, died in about 445, um, we cite him a lot. He's kind of a champion for um, traditional uh, Catholics, but he does say it very clearly, um, and he's a saint. He says the following. He asked this question, what then should a Catholic do if some portion of the church detaches itself from the communion of the universal faith. So he's saying, what do we do if some members of the church start to not 
teach the faith? That's his, his question. He says, what choice can he make if some new contagion attempts to poison no longer a small part of the church, but the whole church at once? So this is four, 400 AD, and he's saying, what happens if the whole church is taken by some kind of heresy, right, in some way? And he says, then his, his great concern, the Catholic's great concern, will be to attach himself to antiquity, which can no longer be led astray by any lying novelty. So it's the same refrain. If there's a contradiction, if they depart, and he's, he seems to think that's possible, you've got to follow what was always taught. That's You've got to obey God and not men. Same theme every time. Um, so all that being said, I think we in some way have responded to that second objection. You've got to understand infallibility correctly. You've got to judge the arguments properly to see, is there really a contradiction? You can't escape the question just by saying, well, there could never be such a thing because we seem to be in that situation now. And also the church in the past, many have admitted, maybe this is a possibility that the Pope is not teaching the faith. So we have to examine the situation carefully. Uh, that's, I think, how we can answer that second objection for now and then go into the arguments uh, later, right? Right. Well, that's that's great. That's um, that's really good. And, and yeah, like you said, we're going to be talking about some of these same topics again. Um, this is episode number uh, 33. We'll be talking about right. Is, right. is Vatican II infallible? That's going to be coming up in uh, episode number thirty-seven, so in two more episodes. Yeah. So, we're going to be really covering this in, in more detail. But this is this is a great framework for us to start working with. Yeah, good. Okay, so let's go to the. We've got two more objections left. They're shorter than the first okay. two, so we're, we'll just buckle up for that. The All um, right. <laughs> the third objection, the third objection said this. Well, it's basically saying to us, the society. Look, you're really arrogant. You're really being audacious by claiming that you've discovered these contradictions. And um, don't you? Aren't you afraid that you're making a mistake? That's yeah. where I come up. How can you be certain? Uh, it's much safer just to obey. Uh, stop causing all these problems and making everything complicated. Just, it's fine. You know, you you you're not that smart. Calm down. Right. That's, that's the objection more or less. And, and again, I think it's been urged against us uh, multiple times, but um, the first thing we have to say in response to this is that it's a, it's not really an argument. It's a kind of a cop out. And uh, I don't mean to, to overly attack it in this way, but let's say it doesn't even attempt to address the arguments, which we try to bring forward. And again, I, I think we've seen that given that there is a crisis in the church, and if you don't know that, go back to episode one, given that there are a lot of disasters happening, or as you said with the Father Ruder and the hermeneutic of continuity, the the, the pernicious fruit is is evident, it's, it's, it's seen. We have to find a proximate and a sufficient cause for that uh, pernicious fruit. Um, this, this is not, this objection is not an argument, it's just... Uh, punting on that whole question. And I don't think you can really do that in this situation. Um, they're, they're trying, the objector's trying to claim that we are somehow incapable of making such a judgment or that anytime we make a judgment that there is a contradiction, we're, we're doing so rashly 
without sufficient evidence or without sufficiently reflecting on the position. Um, and in that way, I think it kind of goes back to that first objection. It kind of ends up saying blind obedience, blind obedience, just obey. But this cannot be true because our Lord said very clearly, uh, by their fruits, you shall know them. And now a clearer command to actually use your reason and, and see what the thing is. I, I, I can't find one. You know, that's, he says, you got to make the judgment about the fruits. You're going to know the, the, the sheep from the wolves by their fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. And so in the same way, we have to look at the crisis in the church, the situation and everything like that. And we have to say, yeah, by their fruits, we will know them. So we see bad fruit. Where does it come from? Is there really a contradiction here? And so it forces us to investigate. And that's what this objector is saying that we cannot do or that we can't do right. Uh, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, I said before uh, that um, the SSPX is not the only one who is uh, noting that there are contradictions. Um, many Catholics are beginning to see the same thing. Again, that, that Amoris Laetitia really put it in the forefront. We have a what seems to be an unavoidable contradiction between what Pope Francis is saying to do and what the church was teaching before. So it's becoming less and less possible to, to just get out of this. Um, again, uh, as I mentioned before, the progressives see that there is a contradiction. They rejoice in it. Uh, we deplore it, uh, but they, they see it too. So, uh, so is there really one we need to investigate? That's why this objection doesn't work, right? It's not just the society then, it's others too that are, that are seeing this. Um, now, final point about this objection is, is you know, maybe the million dollar question. Uh, if we read this objection more as a more as a, a question to us of saying, well, how can you be so sure? How can you be so sure that you're right about this? Seems like it's pretty dangerous. Like, watch out, you know. Um, and this re this rejoins the whole idea. Well, it's safer to obey. But I want to say immediately, and that just comes to my mind right now, is it? but maybe it's not safer to obey, right? Maybe, maybe it's more dangerous to obey. Right. And if you don't take the time to look into it, well, you might be following the more dangerous course under the name of safety. Uh, so, so that don't do that. That that's, that's a problem, right? But let's try to, let's try to answer why the society can claim to be so certain here. And it's pretty straightforward. Uh, I think we can boil it down to, to two things. First is the principles on which we base this whole question, which are the principles of obedience, right? So what do I do if an authority gives me something that goes against a higher authority? And those principles are out of, not, not in question. They cannot be questioned. They're Catholic teaching. Uh, everybody's clear about those. And usually I would say, for most people, that's not actually the problem, right? They don't actually have a problem with the principles we outlined about obedience. The second point, which is the question of the certainty, is really the only question here. Um, are we, in fact, are we, the society, in fact, being asked to do something or to subscribe to something that does indeed contradict Catholic doctrine? That's really the question. Is there actually a contradiction here? That's the question. And so how can we be sure about this? Well, first of all, uh, realize that the kind of certainty or surety that we need to have 
here is what we call um, it's a very very common term uh, moral certainty. So not an absolute or mathematical certainty like two plus two equals four. I know that you know with mathematical absolute certainty we need a moral certainty. What is moral certainty? Well, it's a certainty or a sureness that excludes all prudent doubt. So not any doubt you might imagine or think up, but excludes all doubt that you can prudently put forth. That's moral certainty. Uh, now, based on why do we think we have that moral certainty? Well, we have the church teaching from 2000 years readily available in the catechisms, uh, in, in the encyclicals of the popes, in, in the, the councils that were given. It's there. We can read it. And we have the warnings of the popes about errors such as modernism, liberalism, naturalism. We have all those warnings from the pope saying, watch out. This is a real error. It's around. It's there. Be careful. And we have the admission of the hierarchy themselves, some of those in the hierarchy themselves, that what they are claiming is in fact along the lines of those who have taught modernism or liberalism or naturalism. There doesn't seem to be much room for prudent doubt left, right? If, if the authorities are saying, yes, we, we are saying things that are from these authors that maybe are modernist or whatever, if we, we were warned about that by the popes, if we have the clear teaching of the church uh, to oppose to that, we can be morally certain that there's there's an opposition here, um, and that's that's what you need in this in this scenario, and this is why I think Archbishop Lefebvre uh, would say had had said that you know any child with his catechism can detect some of the errors of today. He he wasn't being flippant when he said that. Right. He was trying to say that um, in the catechism is a, is a clear statement. And when somebody in authority says the opposite of that statement, even the, the, the child can, can say, but these aren't the same thing, or they don't seem to be the same thing. And that's why, again, I mentioned Amoris Laetitia, because a child could say that, right? Where well, the children learn in their catechism that you can only receive Holy Communion if you are in the state of grace, period. And then the Pope says, no, it's possible to receive Holy Communion if you are in a state of sin. That's a contradiction. And I, I'm, I'm certain it's a contradiction. Right. I, I don't need to look anywhere else, right? Um, and so the first thing I would do is go to the Pope and say, is that really what you mean? And that, that's what, that's what you know, these four cardinals did with the dubia. Uh, it's what Archbishop Lefebvre did, in fact, with religious liberty, with the dubia surrounding that in the 80s. Uh, is that really what you mean? And then when they don't clarify or when they, they seem to do things that affirms that that's what they mean, then we have to say, Holy Father, we cannot follow you in this regard. We respect you, but we cannot follow. Uh, so that's that's where we are, I think. Um, so I, th I think that solves what we can solve about the third objection in, at this at this stage. Okay. Uh, but it does lead us pretty directly into the fourth objection, which is which was this basically instead of vacant disposition, right? If there really is so deep a disagreement between the church authorities and tradition, 
And if it's the specific job of those authorities precisely to protect us from this kind of thing, these errors that they're now propagating, well, then they're heretics. They've lost their office. They're formerly heretical. They've lost their office. Or they prove that they never had that office in the first place. And this is really, uh, I think, a, dan a great danger for Catholics today to, to go in this direction. It's not the position of the society at all. It's never been the position of the society. Uh, we, we see that very much with Archbishop Lefebvre, who was urging his priests at the time not to fall into this mistake, right? He, he considered it a mistake. Um, now, we have a whole podcast or maybe more than one on this topic. So we're not going to repeat all of that. We're not going to, I mean, there's one coming up. We're not going to yep. go into all that detail here. We can't. Uh, but I would like to point out a few things that are kind of just um, a little bit of a teaser. Uh, that's the wrong word, but a little bit of a preparation yeah. for that. And it's kind of to, to push the ball back into the court of the set of vacantists, those who would address this objection to us. Uh, first thing I want to say is remember that authority, all authority is from God and it's willed by God. And therefore, obedience is willed by God. Now, if you're ready just to throw out the highest authority on earth and to say he's not actually the authority because they say the Pope is not the Pope, right? Uh, you have to explain how it's possible to still live a life of obedience. You can't dispense with obedience completely just because there's no Pope. Um so set of vacantism is going to have some serious explaining to do uh, to say, in practice, how do we live our life? How do we do what we need to do? I'm not saying they can't do that, but they need to do that. The burden of proof is on them there because uh, we have to give the benefit of the doubt to the authority. Um, now, this is why I, I mentioned in passing that Archbishop Lefebvre was really wise to establish the society because... Within the society, there's a hierarchy. I have to obey my superior. It's not because I, I, it's a crisis that I can do whatever I want. Right. If my superior tells me to go somewhere, I have to go somewhere. And similarly, if the Pope tells us, you know, now we want you to come to Rome to talk to us about this, present your situation again, we have to go. We, we, we have to say, okay, we're going to do what we can to, to fulfill that. Um, so we don't, throw out the life of obedience. We try to maintain it uh, in admittedly a difficult situation. There's no doubt, but but we maintain the life of obedience, which is willed by God. Um, so that's important. That's the first point I think I would kind of urge uh, to the set of vacantists. The second thing that I would say about this objection from the set of vacantists is that it does seem to ignore uh, many of the quotations which we can give from the popes, uh, the, the theologians, um, that they say it's possible for an authority of the church while remaining the authority to speak error. And if that's the case, then you have to correct him uh, as, a, as a son to his father, right, filially. And so they seem to ignore that this could be a possibility. So where's the line? This is the question to the set of vacantists. Where's the line on when are we just in a situation where we need to issue filial correction? And when do we cross the line and these people forfeit their office? Right. That's not at all clear to me where that line is, right? And I would be really hesitant to say, yep, we've blown right past that line. 
They're not even an authority anymore. Uh, I think that should give somebody pause. I'll put it that way. Uh, final thing that I want to say here is just um, in some ways, it seems to me that this objection, the fourth objection, rejoins the second objection. So it goes like this for the set of vacantists, and I'm not saying this is what they say, it's an oversimplification, but at the core, I wonder if this is playing a part sometimes. They say the following, well, look, infallibility means that the Pope cannot make mistakes, but he has made mistakes, therefore he's not the Pope. That's more or less the way it goes, right? If the Pope says this, that's not infallible, but the Pope is infallible, therefore he's not the Pope which is kind of the same thing the second objection was saying, but flipped around, right? Now the conclusion is there's no Pope instead of there's no contradiction, right? So they say there is a contradiction, therefore there's no Pope. But again, this is a complete oversimplification of the question of infallibility. It just doesn't work that way, you know? That's not, and we see that from the history of the church. So again, if you're gonna go in that direction of set of vacantism, you better have a very clear notion of what you mean by infallibility if you're going to urge that as a proof to show that the Pope is not the Pope, right? And I think that's why Archbishop Lefebvre was, was very clear and repeatedly saying uh, to the seminarians at the time, you know, that the set of vacant disposition is just, it's too simplistic uh, a solution to the problem. It's really easy for us to just say, let's just throw everything out. It's too complicated. And you know what? The Pope's not the Pope. Let's We'll figure it out from there, but just throw it out. But no, it's much harder to live a life of obedience under superiors who are not practicing, who are not preaching the truth, right? That's a much harder thing. So it would be, it would be easier just to say, let's just forget about it and do our right. own thing. Uh, but again, many of the saints were in that position. They were under superiors who were unjust or who were not exercising their authority well, and they stayed there. And they corrected them when they had to, but they and they were respectful, but they recognized that the authority was still the authority. Uh, so that gives me pause about the set of vacant disposition, right? It's too easy, too simplistic, maybe. So they're going to have to explain something there. Um, well, we've finally more, basically reached the end. That's the, <laughs> that was the fourth objection. We'll talk more about it. Uh, this ended up being pretty long. Um, I just maybe conclude with one one thought. Um, so Bishop Bishop Fele, uh, a while back now, he he started a conference uh, on a situation in the church with with some very simple words that I want to just bring back here. He said, you know, if we're here, it's because we want to be Catholic, nothing more, nothing less. And I think the whole summary of all of this conference and all this question of obedience and all these ins and outs and objections and whatever, it has to always come down to that. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why does the SSPX hold the position it does? It's simple. We just want to be Catholic. And we want to be Catholic. That means we want to hold the faith in its integrity, the faith without which we cannot be pleasing to God, the faith which is going to be the the solution for all the problems in the modern world, for all the crises that there are. It's the grace of God, the faith in God that's going to save us. We just want to be faithful to that faith. And um, I, I think I can speak for more than just myself, but the, the, more than just the just me, the other priests as well, that 
you know, none of the members of the society are are comfortable or happy with the situation in the church today. It's not right. it's not a comfortable situation. I'm not happy that we have to uh you know say to the Pope, you're saying something wrong or something like that. I'd much rather it be another way. But we don't have the right to to just bow out of this if we really do want to be Catholic. So I think that's the that's really the bottom line. It, it maybe can feel like we're walking on a tightrope sometimes, but the point is it's getting clearer and clearer as the days go by. More and more people are realizing, hey, there's a problem here. Where does it come from? What's the issue? And we just need, for our part, we just need to keep um, saying the truth, but also respecting the authority and realizing, I think uh, this came up in a previous podcast too, that. The church is going to be the one to solve this. Rome has to step in in some way. I don't know how that's going to, I know what it's going to look like, but right. um, Rome has to step in. Um, so again, that's that's the bottom line here. We want to be Catholic, nothing more, nothing less. It's a beautiful way to end it, Father. Thank you. Uh, and yes, this was a longer episode. We're just pushing an, an hour and a half, but um, this is, but this is really in my mind, the, the linchpin of this entire series. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not trying to say that you're the most important one. All of our priests have been, have been wonderful and, and, and gave a ton of our time, but this yeah. really is the, the linchpin of it. How do we, how do we get from all of this history? All right. Now we're talking about obedience. Okay. Now we're going to talk about the practical applications. Next, we're going to be talking about a set of a contest. We're going to be talking about the infallibility right. of the council. Right. How can the church give us the mass? Then we're going to get into the position of the society of St. Pius and in more detail, but this is kind of our turning point of this entire series of these 48 episodes we're doing. So yeah. Thank you, Father. That was um, yeah. that was really well and done, it, and I appreciate it. And I just want to add to th to that there that that it, precisely this conference can't be complete without the other ones. That's you know, and that's why. So we need those. We need the other priests to <laughs> to to address those topics, which certainly they will. But hopefully, this this gives a something of a framework for that. So absolutely, absolutely. Well, Father, thank you. Uh, for taking the time. I'm seeing the clock behind oh. you. It's past eight o'clock already. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and enjoy okay. the rest of your summer, uh, your time Thank off you. before you head back to the Thank seminary. You. All right. God bless you. You too. Bye now.